What an excellent song to lead us into our time together in God's Word as we think about the work of the Spirit in the world around us and even in His saints. Think about the sanctification that He sets about as He continues to conform us into the image of, a, of Christ and give us the desires of our hearts even as our desires or our Christ's desires as He lives in us through the power and person of the Holy Spirit. We're so thankful for it. This morning we are finishing up, maybe not quite, but at least starting, our time together in the attributes of our God. For several weeks now, maybe even for a couple months, certainly for a couple months, we have been working through the articles of faith of the Bible Fellowship Church on the person of God the Father, and this morning we will begin our time in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, as that's where we will begin our time considering uh, this most important topic, uh, as well as over in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, to finish our time up. But John chapter 14 this morning, and as you turn to John chapter 14, let us turn to the Lord one more time in a word of prayer as we ask Him to be with us in this moment. Uh, even as he implants the word into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are at work in the world around us. That your spirit has not left us to ourselves to fend for ourselves, but that it is, he is, still at work in the world around us. That he is working out your will upon this earth, even as it is in heaven, especially among those who call you as God the Father and your Son Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Spirit began a good work in us and we trust that he will bring that work to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And so this morning as we consider the person of the Holy Spirit. Would you impress upon our hearts his relevance for our lives and our ministries and even our witness in the world? And would you cause us to worship him for he is due our worship, for he is eternally equal with God. We're thankful for it and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I invite you to look, take a look at your bulletin insert this morning. What I'd like to do at the start of our time together in God's Word is recite together the Nicene Creed on the Holy Spirit. You can find it there at the top of your bulletin insert where it says Nicene Creed on the Holy Spirit. And we will recite together that statement following that which is in bold. So let us say it together this morning. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord the giver of life, he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Now the reason I decided to start our conversation on the Holy Spirit this morning by reciting the Nicene Creed is because I want us to understand that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has been something that is not only cherished by the church at large, even through the history of the church, 
But it was something that was given a devoted amount of time to and clearly delineated in the Nicene Creed. The person and work of the Holy Spirit in the minds of the church fathers in A.D. 325 was to come up with an orthodox statement. That is a statement that we all as Christians can ascribe to and believe And they sought to articulate it to us and to pass it down from generation to generation to generation. You see, the Holy Spirit is an important truth. He is an important person for us to understand. And yet I fear many of us within the evangelical church at large has gotten away from a right conception of and the orthodox position on the Holy Spirit. I fear that many of us within the church at large, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, see the Spirit more as some thing rather than some one. And so what I want to do this morning in our time together is to introduce you to the third person of the Trinity, And talk a little bit about his role within the Godhead. Two weeks ago I mentioned that I was planning on doing a single sermon on the Holy Spirit. And many of you, many of you doubted that that was possible. Well, unfortunately you were right. Or maybe fortunately so. And so as I talk about the importance of the Holy Spirit, I felt it needed at least two weeks of our time And we have two headings within the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in our Articles of Faith. And so it is those two headings that I would like to consider both this week and next week. You find the first on the insert in your bulletin. Let me read it for you and you can follow along with me as you find it there. It says this, The eternal Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, is of the same substance and equal in power and glory, with the Father and the Son. By Him, the prophets were moved to speak the Word of God, and all writers of the Holy Scriptures were inspired to record infallibly the mind and will of God. He is the only efficient agent in the application of redemption. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment moves them to repentance, and regenerates them by His grace, enabling them to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. What I'd like to do is to organize our time together under two headings this morning. Two headings, and the first is this. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. As I've said, I think this is an important truth for us to point out, because it's one that I fear might be the greatest misconception concerning the third person of the Trinity. In our modern minds, when we think of the concept of a spirit, or even of a ghost, as the King James so popularly coined concerning the Holy Spirit, We might think of some disembodied entity or even some impersonal force. Furthermore, 
because he is labeled the Spirit of God, we might even suppose that he is somehow directly connected to the Father as if he is some outworking life force of God the Father and not a distinct person within the Trinity. Now, neither of these things are the case. The Spirit of God is a unique person set apart from both God the Father and God the Son, although he is eternally equal in essence with each. And as I said at the outset, the Holy Spirit is someone, not something. And we notice this in several texts, but one that is especially helpful for us is John chapter 14. John chapter 14 And we see three things in this text that help us establish the Spirit of God as a unique person. The first is that He is distinguished from God the Father and the Son. Second, what we notice throughout this text is grammatically the first person singular masculine pronoun is used in reference to the Spirit of God. And thirdly, we find that he is an intelligent and volitional being with certain responsibilities within the Godhead. And so with that somewhat outline in place, let us read together John 14, 15 through 17, as well as verses 25 and 26, and we will highlight each one of these things briefly. John chapter 14, verse 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The first thing that we see in this text is that the Spirit is distinguished from both God the Son and God the Father. Notice the language that Jesus uses here in this text. He explains to his disciples that he is going away. And when he goes away, he is sending another helper who will be with the disciples forever. Now, the logic is simple and obvious, but should not be overlooked. The word for another indicates that it is not Jesus, the Son, who will be with them, for he will shortly depart from their side, but someone else. A different and unique person other than Jesus will reside with the disciples and with us indefinitely. And we notice that that person is identified as the spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit. We also learn in this text that the spirit of truth is different from the Father, that is God the Father, who will send this helper in Christ's name. You see that in verse 26 of verse 14, where he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. And so what we find in John 14 is that the Spirit of God is a different person from both God the Father and God the Son, and yet he is inseparably linked to accomplishing the mission of God the Father and the Son on earth. But there's a second thing that we see throughout this text as we seek to establish the unique personhood of the, of the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit is given masculine pronouns indicating both in English and in Greek that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a thing. Notice it again in John 14, verse 16. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 26, He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. The article here, the personal pronoun, is a masculine one, not a neuter pronoun. And therefore, we know that the text is referring to a person. Thirdly, we find in this text that the Holy Spirit is not a force. He is an intelligent and volitional being with a will and an intellect. And that he is given a particular responsibility within the Godhead. The title that Jesus places on the Spirit in chapter 14 is the Spirit of Truth. Which means that the Spirit of God possesses all truth, just like Jesus is the truth and God is the truth. And therefore, the Spirit is not only the person of God, but He is also equal with God. And He has this responsibility because he is a person, because he has all truth, to teach the disciples and to bring all their truth to remembrance. This responsibility makes the Spirit of God actively involved in possessing and distributing God's truth to others. We see this again later in John chapter 16. You probably just have to turn a page over to John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11, where we see the Spirit of God is directly involved in revealing the truth of God's salvation through Jesus the Son to an unbelieving world. Notice it in verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We see again here in chapter 16 of the Gospel of John are those three distinctions concerning the Holy Spirit of God. He is distinguished in this text from both Father and Son. He is referred again by the first person masculine pronoun. 
And he is given this responsibility over the whole of God's truth to bring it to bear and have weight on those who have rejected Christ and have rejected his truth and therefore continue to walk in their sin. It is the Spirit's direct responsibility to bring conviction upon an unbelieving world. So I trust, as we've looked at these things, that you are now confident to assert that the Spirit of God is not a force, but He is a person. But this leads us then to this important question. Why does all of that matter? Now, I think it matters a great deal to us. And the reason I think it matters is because it affects the way that we relate to the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is a personal divine being, then when we conceptualize Him and His ministry, we ought not see Him as some spiritual energy or force in the world around us, but we ought to see Him as He truly is, the third person of the Trinity who is actively carrying out God's plan in the world around us, and therefore He is worthy of our adoration and praise. You see, He is God. He is equal in essence with both Father and Son. He is active in creation. He is bringing salvation to the world. And He is sanctifying God's people. We should not view the Spirit as some portion of spiritual power that we will receive if we pray hard enough or have enough faith. Rather, we should see Him as a divine person who is working in us and in the world around us. Like we learn in Acts chapter 8, verse 18 with Simon the magician, the Spirit of God cannot be purchased as if it were some spiritual elixir that grants us some superhuman capabilities in order to impress our friends. No, the Spirit is not a force. He is a person, and therefore, He does not submit to us. We submit to Him. The Spirit of God is a divine person who is carrying out God's mission in the world. And therefore, He is worthy of our worship. And if it sounds foreign to you, as it did much to me when I was studying and writing this sermon, if it sounds foreign to you that we ought to worship the Holy Spirit of God, then I think it just goes to show how far we have fallen to appreciate the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But He is a person, and we should worship Him. And He is at work in the world. Which leads us then to our second heading this morning. And it's this, not only is the Holy Spirit a divine person, He also has a divine name. He has a divine name. 
Have you ever stopped to think why the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit? Is there something to that title of spirit? Or is its intent to just confuse us into some misidentifying and misunderstanding his true nature and worth? My contention, beloved, is that through the scriptures, what we find is that there is particular significance to the title of the third person of the Trinity. There's a reason why he is called the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. And the reason he's called the Holy Spirit is because... He is the member of the divine Godhead that executes God's plan on earth. Let me say that again. You can find it on the insert in your bulletin if you're following along. What we find throughout Scripture, and what I seek to point out to you today, is that the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit because He is the member of the divine Godhead that executes God's plans on earth. He is the member of the Trinity who moves in the created realm to carry out the desires of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we notice this very early on in the Bible. We notice it in our very first encounter and the very second verse of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn now to Genesis chapter 1. It should be very easy for you to find. It is the very first chapter and therefore go to the very beginning of the Bible and find with me together Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. Where it says this, and we have a very early indication on the particular responsibility of the Spirit of God and therefore why He is given that title. It says this, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we have the first designation of the Spirit of God. And there are two significant things that we find here. The first is the title that is given to the third person of the Trinity. And the second is the work that we find the Spirit doing at the beginning of creation. The third person is called the Spirit of God. That is his name. Just like you have God the Father and God the Son, we have here God the Spirit. And the word that is used here for Spirit is the Hebrew word rach. It's fun to say. Got to really clear your throat as you say it. Say it one more time for you. Rach. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not, but it sounds good. And that word in Hebrew means breath, wind, 
or even more vividly, air in motion. The word rock is intended to communicate the idea of life or that which is alive, that which is animated, and that which has movement. The contradiction to this word would be the idea of something being still or stagnant. But this word is directly connected even to the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 as God breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life. Notice it in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The idea here is that as the Lord breathes into man a spirit, he is now an animated and active creature and not a lifeless or inanimate object. And so the sense of this word that we find in Genesis chapter chapter 1 is that which moves or is active or that which animates. And what we notice in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 is that the Spirit of God is the one who is directly involved in the actual outworking of God to create all things. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. The imagery is that of an eagle actively stirring up and guiding her young as they take flight for the first time. We see this usage in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. And the implication here is that as God the Father is is dictating His grand design for creation and speaking it into existence, hear this, the Spirit of God is the active agent who is bringing God's plan to fruition. He is the one who is moving and working over the face of the waters and of the deep to execute God's plan for the earth and the creation of all things. The Spirit, indicated by this designation of the wind that is blowing, is that person of the Godhead who is directly and actively involved in bringing God's plan to life. Joel Beakey in his Systematic Theology says this, and you can find the quote on the insert in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. He says, At the very beginning of the process of creation, we meet the Holy Spirit working to craft a home for living creatures. Genesis 1 is not describing a violent wind, but depicting the Spirit as the agent of God's nurturing presence in the primeval, uncultivated wilderness. This tender image communicates that the Spirit of God 
cared for creation in its infantile state and brought it to life and completion. As we read in the text that follows how God repeatedly spoke and sovereignly shaped the universe, we are to understand that the Spirit accompanied the creative word at every stage of creation. And therefore, the Father dictates and speaks through the Word the creation of all things. And the Spirit attends to that speaking of the Word in order to bring about that which God desires on earth. The Spirit is the one who gets His hands dirty, so to speak. He is the one who is directly overseeing the creation of all things. And what we notice throughout Scripture is that every time God is active throughout the history of Israel and even into the church age, which we will consider next week, every time God is active, we find the Spirit of God close at hand. Just think about, first, the Spirit's involvement in the act of prophecy. What we learn from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, is that no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but hear this, holy men of God spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we see this pattern again and again throughout the prophets as they recognize the Spirit of the Lord directly involved in the prophetic word coming to God's people. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, which you find in in your bulletin insert. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 5, The Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and He said to me, Say thus says the Lord. David says over in 2 Samuel chapter 23 verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, His word is on my tongue. What we see throughout Scripture is that every time God is active in humanity, the Spirit of God is the one who is actuating God's plan for His people and for the world. We see this again as the Spirit of God empowers kings and judges to rule over His people. We see it in Joseph in Genesis chapter 41 verse 38 and 40. We see it in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 8 through 9. We see it in Joshua, in Numbers 27, 18, and Othniel, in Judges 3, 10, and Samson, in Judges 14, 6, and Saul, in 1 Samuel 10, 6 through 10, and David, in 1 Samuel 16, 13 through 14. What we notice is that each one of these were anointed and filled by the Spirit of God so that they could carry out God's will on the earth. Even in Exodus chapter 31, 3 and 35, 31, where we see the craftsmen who put together the tabernacle to worship the Lord. 
it says the Spirit of the Lord was upon them in order that they might accomplish what God had for them according to God's standard. Every time we see God active in humanity, we see the Spirit close at hand. So what's the point? The point is this. The point is that the Spirit of God is at work, beloved. The Spirit of God is not some impersonal force that we call upon in order to impress our friends. The Spirit of God is working to execute the divine plan according to the divine standard. And no more do we see this active agency than in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ the Son. And what you notice as you read through the Gospels is that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the work of Christ as he is born in the Immaculate Conception, as he is baptized and tempted in the wilderness, even as he does his ministry of proclamation and the performance of miracles, all the way up to that faithful road to the cross and even in his resurrection. Now I've included all of that in a paragraph here in the insert in your bulletin so that you can take it home and read through all those passages and you can see how the Spirit is involved in the work and life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's actually quite a poignant thought to see that Christ was never alone throughout his ministry. That at every turn, the Spirit of God, that is the third person of the Trinity, was with the Son according to the Father's will. That the Spirit of God was attending to Christ even as he suffered for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. That the Spirit of God was with the Son as he went to the cross and sacrificed himself up for the sins of those who believe. That even the Spirit of Christ was there on that day when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And it is that very same Spirit of power that resurrects us from the dead. And even that we see in the picture of baptism this morning. Now this reality might even be why the words of Jesus in John 14 and 16 are so genuine and sweet. If it's true that the Spirit was with Jesus throughout his life and ministry... And he brought him comfort and strength, even in his weakest moments. Then Jesus' words to the disciples are not empty words, but they are full of compassion and care. You see, Jesus knew how sweet the fellowship of the Spirit was, not only because he enjoyed it throughout all of eternity but especially because he enjoyed it during his life and ministry on earth. 
And he wanted his disciples to experience the very same fellowship. And it's why he says to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, I will send to you the paraclete. I will send to you the comforter. I will send to you the strengthener. I will send to you the helper. And just as Jesus was carried along by the Spirit throughout his ministry, so too we as his disciples are carried along by that same ministry of the Spirit of God. We as believers are guaranteed this special presence of the Spirit as we walk in our own lives and ministry on this earth. And therefore, as we think about the work of the Spirit, as we think about the person of the Spirit, as we think about all that He does, our challenge this morning, beloved, is not to get distracted by all the bad things that are happening in the world. Our challenge, beloved, is to see the Spirit of God the third person of the Trinity behind every single action on this earth. Our challenge, beloved, as we watch the news or as we see hardship in our friends and family members' lives, our challenge, beloved, is not to get distracted by what's in front of us. Our challenge is to see the Spirit and to worship the Spirit, and to be confident that God has not left us alone on this earth, but that just like Jesus the Son, He has given us another comforter who will be with us forever. And so, beloved, as you go about your days this week, as you go into your workplaces as you go into your homes, as you associate with friends and families and even with those outside in the world, be confident that the Spirit walks alongside of you and that He is at work in your lives, in the lives of those around you, and even in the world. And that is where we will go next week. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your grace towards us. Father, how many gifts have you given to us in order that we might walk uprightly? How many benefits have you given to your children in order that we might have strength to endure even the suffering and hardships of this world. Father, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is that one who is a blessing to us as we walk this journey on earth. And so, Father, would you impress upon our minds his value and his worthiness to be worshipped, even as we depend on him in everything that we do. 
We're so thankful for it, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us?